So here we are in Romans. We're looking at the book of Romans, and just to remind us again of what it is we're doing here as we sweep through the Bible. Uh, We've been through the Old Testament up to the Minor Prophets. Uh, We've we've looked at one of the uh, Gospels. We looked at Acts. Uh, And now we're looking at Romans here. And again, we're looking at the sweep of God's plan of redemption through the Bible. And we see that Uh, God has purposefully and decisively uh, described and laid out for His people through the ages uh, the the truths of His purpose and plan for us, for His people. Uh, We see that that God has intended to lay out for us gradually and progressively over time the display of His ultimate plan that would include a Savior in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It would include atonement for sin, a bloody atonement. Um, and it would include a spiritual work. Uh, it would include spiritual work in our lives. And so we have seen that up to this point. And now... We look here at Romans, and in Romans we're brought to an interesting and very significant, if you will, display of the truths of God in the gospel. We really have uh, perhaps some of the most definitive information revealed by God about the gospel right here in Romans. And as we look at uh, primarily two verses today... Verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, we will be looking at what what, uh, many Bible students have considered to be uh, a a very effective summary of the entire book of Romans in two verses, verses 16 and 17, and also for that matter perhaps some of the most important verses in all of the Bible when you consider the gospel, when you consider the revelation of God, when you consider the condition of man. So, Lord willing, we'll take this one phrase or one word at a time as we pass through Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And we're struck immediately with the Apostle Paul here as he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is bringing us right up front. He is trying to help the Roman church understand uh, that there will be occasion for them and an inclination to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so he is stating this, uh, perhaps uh, abruptly so and purposefully so, no doubt, for uh, the impact that he would make. He doesn't say here that I am uh, very happy about the gospel, that I am proud of the gospel, that I stand here confidently and boldly uh, regarding the gospel. Paul has in some ways said that, but he doesn't say it here. He's bringing us right to our own realities and the realities likely of those Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why do you think he says this? Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? If you've never been ashamed of the gospel, it is likely that you are yet unredeemed. Think about it. Think of the person of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who was he? He was a carpenter. He was the son of a carpenter. He was born in a stable. 
He lived a lowly and earthly life. He he died as a criminal on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ. God, a very God, just as we have said here. Just as we have repeated in the Nicene Creed. Those things which for all time represent the truths of the Bible. Potential for an inclination to be ashamed because of the person of the gospel. And also, the truth of the gospel. The world ridicules the teachings of Christ. Paul prepares the Romans for bearing the reproach of Christ. Even for believers, the reproach of Christ, it gets in your head. You may try to remain aloof from the ridicule that comes. People, no doubt, make fun of your commitment to the church. They might make fun of the fact that you pray to a being you cannot see. You invest yourself in an old book, the Bible. The Lord Jesus said in Luke 9.26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This idea, the Apostle Paul again is declaring here, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'd like to draw your attention as we yet consider this idea of being ashamed of the gospel to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 1 is a very special letter that the Apostle wrote. He wrote this letter as he awaited execution. He wrote it to perhaps his most treasured son in the faith, Timothy, the one who would certainly in many ways carry on the work of the Apostle. He's at the end of his life. He awaits execution. As we think about this, let's consider what he says to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, and teacher, for which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I might draw your attention further down on the page, verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So here's Timothy, his son in the faith, and perhaps as he reports to his fellow believers, those who had heard of Paul, those who perhaps had even seen Paul, they perhaps when Timothy said yet again, He's in trouble again. Paul's gotten himself thrown out of some other city or he's in jail. And you can consider what that might do to an individual's mind, the way that they might think about their spiritual father, if you were. And the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. He calls out Onesiphorus here. He says, Onesiphorus, he wasn't ashamed of my chains. He ministered to me. And he recognized the validity and the realities of Christ, of a Redeemer, of that one who yet was born in a stable, brought up as a carpenter's son, and as the Savior of the world. So the Apostle Paul begins perhaps this most important verse in the Bible. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The daily, the weekly, the monthly, the yearly grind of being faithful, of facing ridicule, for confronting and confessing sin, being convicted of sin, trusting the Scriptures when you can't know the future. The Gospel reveals the absolute and total powerlessness of even the strongest of men to do anything about their condition. Yet many insist on inserting themselves around the edges of redemption because they're afraid to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some professing believers may never really get over the shame of being a faithful follower of Christ, of having to deal with their sins. But they often may call this condition something else. They call it by some other name. Because they're ashamed. Because they, they're unwilling, ultimately, because of something that is quite simple, actually. And it is pride to submit oneself to the simple truths of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of all time. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I was reminded this past week of 1 Samuel chapter 6. When we are taught by a forerunner of Christ that we also shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. In 1 Samuel chapter 6 verse 22, David has been worshiping the Lord. That is not the right reference. Second Samuel six, verse twenty two. 
as David is worshiping before the Lord, Michael, his wife, called him out. And he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. And so David is referring again to his commitment to what would appear to be shameful worship of the Lord. So this first idea, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And let's take a brief look at just simply this term, the gospel, by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, the gospel. This is front and center of what the Apostle Paul considers the gospel. As we look here at 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, verse 1 of the gospel, I preach to you which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse 3 here, of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And as the Apostle Paul is speaking about the Gospel that he is not ashamed of, front and center in that Gospel is this this absolute certainty, the reality of the fact that we are associated with the Lord Jesus Christ through His death. And that we are resurrected with Him. That in fact our resurrection has begun. It began when Christ was resurrected. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the death of Christ for us. Because it is the way in which we live. And the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Now often, those who would look at this passage of Scripture, they, of course, would regale in this word that's translated power. It's the word dunamis. And we get, obviously, the word dynamite from this power. But don't think of this power as just some extraordinary strength that some man is capable of performing. This isn't like a superman. That's not this kind of power. But this is otherworldly power. This is specifically miraculous power. This is not simply a collection of strong things and strong people and strong ideas. This is literally out of this world. It is the power of God. The power of God for salvation. For salvation. What is salvation? You think of salvation, what do you what do you think of? Perhaps uh, 
the hungry person that's worked all day, sits down to a fine meal, says, this, this, this wonderful meal is my salvation today. I'm so thankful for it. Or we might consider an opportunity or a situation that seemed very close at hand and maybe failure was at hand, but nonetheless it was recovered and this is my salvation. What is salvation? Well, I'm persuaded perhaps the simplest synonym or one word, one word definition of salvation is simply this, rescue. Rescue. Let's think, about, let's think about rescue a little bit, why don't we? Because there are a lot of things that might fit into the category of rescue that wouldn't be fitting to apply to this situation here. Let's say you're stranded on the side of the road. You need to be rescued. That's true. But it's not a matter of life and death, typically, is it? Salvation is a rescue, so designed based on the condition of the person and the circumstances. The circumstances, that is, of sin, of being in a sinful condition, of being blinded by sin. A rescue of salvation is made necessary simply because of our sin. The definitive nature of the necessity of the gospel is personal sin. The gospel isn't a happy accessory to life. And this is also a tremendous source of shame. Even in a situation where a rescue is the only way to live and not die, some are yet overwhelmingly ashamed of the spectacle of a rescue. To understand the doctrine of salvation, we must begin with something else. We must begin with the doctrine of man. The doctrine of man, the doctrine of men and women, of boys and of girls, of man's primary overarching universal condition. It's that of a sinner whose life will be in eternal hell without being rescued. Salvation is a solution to a life-destroying problem in every human being. It's not a mere innovation or invention designed to make your life more pleasurable. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is not a happy add-on that God has decided to do for those people that are called to Himself. It isn't that. Perhaps an illustration may help. I'd like for you to place in your minds, if you will, something as simple as a tall skyscraper building or maybe an ocean liner. A luxury ocean liner. Or perhaps even more fittingly, the personal computer. This is not the point in the sermon where I'm going to begin to hate on technology, by the way. But I'd like for you to think about a hundred-story skyscraper, a luxury ocean liner, and a personal computer. Those things seem to be rather different, aren't they? All three of those items had absolutely no purpose. Needs had to be created. 
for the skyscraper, the luxury ocean liner, and the personal computer. Take, for instance, something as simple as a personal computer. In the late 90s, when they began to show up in people's homes, what could you do with them? You didn't bank, because your banks didn't do that online. You didn't surf the internet. You might have had an email address to talk with the other three people that had emails. There was no purpose for the personal computer. It had to be created. The same is true for those other items. Yeah, we needed to go across the ocean, but you didn't have to do it with a swimming pool and a tennis court. Luxury liners go nowhere. They make circles in the ocean. That doesn't mean it's wrong to take a cruise, but my point is, if we think of salvation as an innovation that was created... We're thinking about it wrongly. The reality is, is because of the sins of man, because of our own sinful condition, there must be a matching salvation for that, and that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a rescue. It is an absolute rescue, without which there is certain and eternal death. It's a rescue. Salvation by the Messiah was not an invention by God in which he needed to look around for a need. Man's condition necessitated every aspect of Christ's atoning sin, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the sinfulness of mankind. The power of God for salvation. Now while we're looking at all of the Bible in a biblical, theological sort of way, I'd like for you to think about sin in a systematic way. So we're about to just do a little systematic theology on sin for a moment. There's no reason for you to turn to all these passages, but let's listen at what the Scriptures say about sin. Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 indicates that we must rule over sin. Because if we don't rule over sin, sin will rule over us. It must be mastered. Genesis 18.7 indicates that sin was the reason for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you know and recall, that wasn't, by the way, some sort of slow degradation by which it simply rusted away. God decided to display His judgment by fire and brimstone, which would stench in the nostrils of Abraham so that he would be reminded of following Christ. Genesis 39.9 says that the greatest offense of sin is against God. Exodus 20.20 indicates that the one grand purpose for the fear of God is that we may not sin. Exodus 29.14 indicates that offerings were made for sin's atonement, and these offerings were bloody offerings requiring the killing of an animal. And that, of course, only pointed to that which would ultimately, in fact and reality, remove the guilt of the sin, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus 34.7 indicates that only God can forgive sin. And it further indicates that the sins of parents further manifest themselves in the children, in their children, if not dealt with. 2 Chronicles 7.14 indicates that it's our sinful nature to make little of our sins. 
and that they will not be forgiven outside of the context of humility and true repentance. Further, Second Chronicles 7.14 indicates that people's sins are what makes living hard and unpleasant in this world. Job 13.23 indicates that among God's purposes for mankind is for them to have the self-awareness of their own sins such that they can repent and be forgiven. Psalm 32.1 indicates that the true blessing from God is first and foremost the forgiveness of sin. Psalm 39.1 indicates that great effort is required to prevent sin. Ecclesiastes 5.6 indicates that our mouths often lead us into sin. John 8.34 indicates that sin enslaves sinners. You may say, well, my sin hasn't done that. Okay. What did God say? He said that sin enslaves sinners. If you're a sinner, then you have been enslaved to sin. We're going to have to serve someone. The Bible indicates that we'll either serve Christ or we'll serve sin. And that's, of course, why we desperately need redemption. Romans 6.1 indicates that our sinful inclinations draw us to think that sin is no big deal because of the abundance of God's grace. Romans 6.13 indicates that we owe our allegiance to God and not to sin. Romans 6.22 indicates that our only hope in life is to no longer be a slave to sin, but to be a slave to God and His righteousness. Romans 8.2 indicates that true freedom is not anything but freedom from sin. Think about it for a moment here in our own nation. If you were to ask the man on the street what was freedom, what would he say? What is freedom? What is freedom? I imagine you might have gotten a somewhat similar answer had you asked the first century Jews what the Messiah would look like. What would the Messiah look like to the first century Jew? Well, he would look like a political leader. He would look like a man with a following. He would look like a man who was powerful and confident and had the accoutrements of power. But the Bible indicates that true freedom, the realities of true freedom, are actually associated with being forgiven of our sins. Galatians 3.22 indicates that Jesus Christ's rescue is a rescue designed only for those trapped and hopeless in sin. If this isn't you, then you, you can't be rescued. What did the Lord Jesus say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He said, I came to save the lost. And they were not lost in their minds, right? Now the reality is is that they were, obviously. They were desperately in need of Christ, in need of this rescue that only God could accomplish through the Lord Jesus. But nonetheless, they removed themselves from the category. 
And so just as the Apostle Paul said, you've counted yourselves unworthy of the gospel. The Bible indicates that all are placed into the category of sinner and in need of rescue. Hebrews 3.13 indicates that sin's deceitfulness can and will harden us to our own sinful condition. Hebrews 12.1 indicates that every sin of ours will hinder our purpose in Christ. James 1.5 indicates that all sin is a process. All sin is a process. This is an important idea because sometimes we describe our sins as a hole we fall in in the dark. As if we had no idea that that was going to happen to us. And James 1.5 indicates that no. No, there is, there is some precursor to sin. There's some indicator of something that's going to happen to you because sin begins not with a hole in the ground, but it begins with a thought in the mind. And then actions follow. And while we may describe it as being surprised by sin... The Bible indicates that it is, in fact, a process. 1 Peter 2.20 indicates to be disciplined for sin is profoundly different than suffering for righteousness' sake. To be disciplined for sin is profoundly different than suffering for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 2.24 Christ died for our sins for the express purpose that we will live in righteousness. And lastly, 1 John 1.8, we're prone to deceive ourselves regarding our own sin. Feel like you need a rescue? Now, perhaps one of the most common remembrances of the book of Romans is right here, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, where we see this... this, uh, horrifying list of the degradations of the depravity of man. There does seem to be a progressive destructive nature, if you will, a a falling down into a hole. The Bible says in verse 18, for instance, of chapter 1, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness." and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we, were, if we were to track that all the way down, we would see, for instance, in verse 27, men likewise gave up natural relations with women. We have homosexuality here. We have, in verse 28, we have further judgments of God. The manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, all of that in 29, 30, slanderers, haters of God. Now, when you get to 18, I mean, where are you at there? You say, well, I mean, I needed a rescue, but I mean, not like that. (laughs) We're all headed for hell without Christ, without the rescue of the Lord Jesus. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... 
the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the mighty power, not of man, but of God, for salvation, for rescue to everyone who believes. Every single individual who will ever be in heaven will affirm that I am lost and undone without the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing I can do. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The God kind of righteousness. What is that like? What is this God kind of righteousness? Again, when the Lord Jesus walked the earth, He would look to the scribes and the Pharisees and He would discuss with them how they would regale about their righteousness. They had a reputation for righteousness, did they not? What did the Lord Jesus say? What did he say? Well, in Matthew 5.20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Where does that leave us? That leaves us needing the righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus spoke of it in the Sermon on the Mount. This God kind of righteousness is a revelation from God. It is revealed, the Bible says here in verse 17. It is revealed. Unaided, man could never have conceived of it or attained it. But we have two ideas here. That God has it and God bestows it. God has it, and God bestows it. A righteousness revealed. The righteousness of God. From faith for faith. Now, faith shows up really four times in these two verses here. We could look uh, at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the first place. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. That's the second. For faith, that's the third. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith. It might be helpful for us to think of this faith also in terms of this same kind of power uh, that was a miraculous power. It was a God power. The righteousness of God. It's not, it's not uh, some superman that somehow managed to obey some aspects of the law of God for a short period of time. But what is this faith? You may say, well, I know a little bit about it because I sat down in a chair today or I, I rode with my parents in the car and let me tell you, they're... They scare me sometimes when they drive. No, that's not, that's not the kind of faith 
Your faith in the chair is like a mathematical calculation. You have reason to expect that the chair will hold you up. That's not biblical faith. That's not what it's about. You're not, uh, you're not uh, kind of schooled up on faith because you've sat down in a lot of chairs or ridden in a lot of cars. We're not saved because of our faith. You don't get saved because your faith finally hits a certain quantity where it can pass over a bar, where you've got enough faith now. We're saved by a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is simply this conduit, if you will. It's the water course. It's the way in which we receive all of the benefits of the union of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is that thing. It is a gift. Yes, it's a gift. It's, it's not a work. Faith is a gift of God. It enables us to recognize that we have nothing to offer Him. Faith is, if you will, it, it, it has an antonym. Faith has an antonym. It's, it's, it's an opposite word of something else. It's the opposite of works. We have nothing to offer God. We, we receive from Him the righteousness of God and all of the other benefits of walking with Him. The Bible says that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul invented this. It's the first time it's ever ever been seen in the Bible, right here. Right here in Romans chapter 1. Is that right? Did the Apostle Paul invent living by faith? No, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, can't we? And we can see that even it was introduced in Genesis chapter 3, this idea that, that our relationship savingly to our Creator would have to come in some way other than a work. Abraham was the father of the worker, wasn't he? Is that who he was? the father of the faithful. We see here that this is a reference. The Apostle Paul has referred to this three times, or he will refer to it three times in his writings, but he says right here out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Who is this righteous? Well, whose righteousness is it? Well, what did... What did the rest of the verse say, right? It's the righteousness of God. Right? Revealed by God and those who will live. What's the alternative of living? You may say it, the alternative of living is not living well. No. That's not the alternative to living. The alternative to living is death. And death isn't just that the lights go out. Death doesn't mean the cease of all sensory understanding and knowledge. Death is not some sort of annihilation where you'll never see, hear, feel, touch, or taste, or see anybody again. It isn't that. Don't forget about the association that the Apostle Paul has with this resurrection. 
to our salvation. He directly associated this idea of salvation, of rescue, with these things delivered of first importance, he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Lord Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again. This resurrection, who's involved in that? Who's going to be resurrected? Everyone. Everyone will be resurrected. The lost and the saved. And the saved will be resurrected to a new life of eternity and joyful bliss with the Lord Jesus Christ and all of those who are redeemed. And those who have rejected Christ will be resurrected and given bodies which will withstand the horrors of hell for an eternity. Death is not just closing your eyes the last time. I'm horrified when I think of people. And they say, yeah, my grandma just died and she wasn't a believer, but now the pain is stopped. The pain is not stopped. It's just begun. It's a horrible thought. We must be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And this is the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Not merely to most people who believe, but to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that, children, sounds like an interesting idea. And we might say, well, what about all the rest of us that aren't Jews or Greeks? And so it would be important for us to know that in this idea that the Apostle Paul is stating here, is he places the Jews in one category and everyone else is in this other category. So you and I, unless you're an ethnic Jew, are included right here in this also to the Greek. And that's likely us. That's where I am anyway. The Lord Jesus said, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and you will be saved. Come to me, and I will redeem you. Without money. Without price. We shall live by faith. Let us pray.